Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Dr. Jeffrey Woodman rejoins the S2 Cognition Podcast today. As you'll remember, he's a professor at Vanderbilt University in psychology and neuroscience, and he's the director of the Vanderbilt Vision Research Center. Dr. Woodman has published over 100 peer-reviewed papers and two textbooks on vision and visual cognition, and is considered a leading expert in attention and visual perception. Today, we are going to dig into S2 Cognition's perception speed task and how it relates to sports. All of that is coming up here on the S2 Cognition Podcast, and as always, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with a friend. Up next, Dr. Jeffrey Woodman. Dr. Jeff, thanks for rejoining us again for another topical and educational discussion on the visual system. We touched on search efficiency. Last time, this time, we're going to look at perception speed. I want to first start uh, and go to Brandon real quick. Brandon, can you describe what task we use and with the athletes sit down and take the evaluation? They take perception speed. What is it that they take? Yeah, uh, good question. And I would say, you know, this is probably the most question we get from um coaches and athletes is, you know, what is perception speed? What does it mean? What does that mean to perceive things quickly? How is there variability between people? Uh, so, so Scott and I actually uh, picked a task that shows a lot of variability and has a lot of precision in the, the timing in which it takes to perceive something. So we use just a classic sort of masking paradigm, which we show uh, a stimulus on the screen. Uh, it's missing corner. You have to identify which corner is missing. Uh, and it's mass, and we change the amount of time that's that it's between the, the stimulus and the mask uh, to see how how long or how much information that they need to be able to perceive it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so when we're talking about this, can you describe basically what what are we hoping to glean? What do we want to understand by this task? What's the hope? And when athletes take this and they take the evaluation for perception speed, what do we hope to get from that? Uh, so we want to know how quickly it takes someone to perceive visual information in their central point of focus. And so when you think about a baseball player, you start thinking about pitch recognition, you start thinking about these guys who can pick up spin. Um, you hear about guys who can tell, you know, hey, if the ball has a red dot on it, it means it's this pitch. If it's a, a you know, solid red, it means it's this pitch. And so they can actually pick up on very subtle visual details that most of us can't. Um, to give them information on what pitch it is. In football, at the line of scrimmage, the game happens so quickly, you need to have a quick sort of camera shutter speed, if you will, to be able to pick up on all the visual information that's going on. Uh, quarterbacks seeing tight passing windows. Um, you've got to be able to perceive things very quickly and then act on them very quickly. So we're hoping uh, that our evaluation, I think we have enough data to suggest that, it, you know, especially in baseball, uh, that we are capturing uh, how quickly guys can pick up information uh, and then make sense of it. Well, how quickly people are processing at the point of focus is essentially what what we're trying to measure. Yeah, how would we say that athletes differ from, I don't know, the average human population? Can we understand like what the human population is doing when they have to take this task versus what athletes do when they take it? So, and this is definitely getting in the Jeff's realm. Um, we, we have seen, you know, professional baseball players perceive things within – 15 or 16 milliseconds. That's like 16 one thousandth of a second, where at, at one point we thought that this was actually subliminal, that humans couldn't process visual information that quickly. 
Uh, and we have uh, uh, pro baseball players who can actually get everyone correct with just a, a 16 millisecond SOA. Um, and, and these guys can see things that, that are occurring at 95, 100 miles an hour, uh, where just the average Joe is just not. It's just not possible. And, and, you know, to be quite frank, you know, and I know Scott, you know, who lives in the baseball world, gives this example all the time. Uh, folks love to, to, to talk about vision, right? And these pro baseball players have 2010 vision, and that's what makes them be able to see things that are good hitters. But, but quite frankly, like Scott says, there's millions of people walking around with 2010 vision and they can't hit 95 miles an hour, right? So there's a lot of visual processing that occurs once your eyes actually see the visual information. So you have to be able to perceive all of that information and utilize it for, uh, you know, for future action. Hey, Brandon, let me just add a little something to that. That's a perfect description. You know, this becomes really important because what we're essentially saying is you can flash an image for 16 one thousandths of a second and some human processors can process that short flash to the point of recognizing what they saw, which is pretty incredible. Other athletes though, may need 81, 80 milliseconds of that flash to be you know, five times longer before they can consistently recognize what they see. And when you're talking about a difference in athletes, tens of milliseconds up to maybe a tenth of a second, 100 milliseconds, for a baseball player, that's significant because they have less than 380, 90 milliseconds to recognize what pitch it is, where it's moving in space, to organize their motor system, to decide whether to swing, and if they decide to swing, when to swing, where to swing. Um, we're talking tens of milliseconds become significant uh, to the whole process of, of, of these dis these decisions that athletes have to make. I think it's helpful to kind of... Yeah, it's, you know, it's wild. The range. Absolutely. Yeah. To make that distinction, I, I think it's really important to talk about the difference. I know we've talked about this before, uh, so I would love really all three of you to jump in with your opinions on this. What is the difference between vision and visual processing, and especially when it comes to perception speed? Yeah, Jeff, you, this is your wheelhouse. You want to take the <laughs> sure. Yes. I'm, I'm teaching the visual system course at Vanderbilt this semester, so I, should, so I better be able to answer this, I guess. So, um, <laughs> you know, when the, the big difference there is something Scott already mentioned, which is the recognition of the object. That's really kind of the key thing that psychologists distinguish between your visual system running and working versus you actually knowing what you see. Um, uh, if you, uh, if we were to anesthetize Brandon and prop up, open his eyes with, um, with, uh, an operculum with, uh, so that he had the full clockwork orange thing going, what we could see is that his visual system would actually still be responding to the stimuli we flash with the same latency all the time. What, you know, whether he's, whether he happens to be close to coming out for, out from anesthesia or not, um, you know, if his heart was beating really fast at that time or not, it looks like it's kind of somewhat constant. But then if he were 
Uh, if he were not under anesthesia, if he were conscious uh, and trying to say whether the thing he's seeing is a digit or a letter, and he just has to make that simple distinction between whether it's, you know, one through nine versus A through Z. When he now has to do that task, it looks like that that the amount of time he now needs to dis, to to recognize the object is somewhat variable from trial to trial. So if we have him press a button to say, when do you when can you recognize this object? You'll actually see variability even in at the individual subject level from trial to trial. Because it looks like that the neurons like in your visual system are responding to the object at the same time, but you haven't had this magic thing happen. <laughs> and that magic thing of recognizing the objects does appear to vary pretty drastically in terms of speed across people. But the general amazing, the other thing that all humans have is the ability to recognize objects uh, at an expert level that's just bananas relative to supercomputers. So this has actually been the, the thing that has made humans um, remain in control of the earth and, until now, is that our visual systems have been the, the fastest supercomputer known to, known to humans. We've been able to recognize objects that, in fact, like rooms full of computers still are just a barely able to do. Um, and the current artificial intelligence um, uh, methods, let's call them, uh, or the architecture that people are using to have like the Tesla drive the car and that sort of stuff are just the visual system. They're models of what we've understood about the visual system. And if you plug that into your code, it's smart. So it looks like the, the, the very architecture that's processing these things is fairly remarkable in that it looks like, you know, being able to recognize objects may actually be kind of intelligence. <laughs> it's what we're calling intelligence. So, um, you know, the artificial intelligence that Google has can tell you if there's a kitty cat in this image. And in 1975, Molly Potter at MIT showed that the average person needs about 80 milliseconds to say whether this picture contained a, a, a cat in it or not. Um, so it looks like the average person can do that really fast. So when I try to tell my students about, okay, we're going to talk about how your brain figures out what, what this is, this pencil, how does your brain know this is a pencil? And people are like, whoa, this class got stupid real fast because it doesn't feel like this is a hard task for our brains. For our brains, that's trivial. And babies can do it incredibly easy. It, it, there may even be, you know, you can do some in utero distinctions between tones and, and light flashes and stuff. So the, the stuff is, is very early in our visual systems. So it's not like, um, uh, you know, it seems to be fundamental that, to something that makes us who we are, what we are, what we do. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Um, the first review paper that I'm aware of that, that, that reviewed what we knew about masking using the kind of task that, that you guys use here um, uh, was written in 1929. So using masks to study the speed of visual processing, the speed of visual recognition has been done for an incredibly long time. And that's a great segue. I, I love that you, you brought that because I want to talk about once we understand the human and the athlete limitations of where we're trying to go with this and our personally, our test that S2 Cognition uses, 
What are some of the, if, if you're looking at it without knowing what our task is, what are some buzzwords that we might hear, Scott, Brandon, in the sports world of perception speed? What When people say this, they're talking about perception speed. What what are those in those sports? I want to get Jeff to elaborate on one thing before Let's do we it. go to that. Let's do it. Because I think it's relevant. Because I think it's related to the terms we use. We often confuse what the eye does with what the brain does. And, and Jeff Jeff just kind of said that, if I heard him correctly, the eyes are pretty constant in how they receive information and transmit that information to the brain. And the bulk of the variability, the the person to person, athlete to athlete differences are going to be in how the brain takes that information from the eyes and then processes it to the point of recognizing uh, what it is. that's that was the main thrust of that that kind of that point there, right? That the, what the eyes are doing is pretty constant. The brain's doing. That's where the meat of the timing differences are going to be revealed. Exactly right. And and it may even be that the earliest stages of of the brain kind of are more machine like like that. In that they it's always you know right at forty milliseconds that they fire their action potentials and say I've the stimulus is here <laughs> and that it's really like a machine and that it looks like it may actually be these kind of higher level areas that do problem solving and creativity and those sort of things that are really required for us to be aware that the objects there. So it's, so it's interesting that when we talk about, you know, perception speed, it's kind of awareness speed. It's how fast can you become aware of the object that you, that you, um, uh, that you're seeing. Um, then this gets us into a more philosophical land of what does, what is consciousness and all that kind of stuff, but it is related. And, and so Scott's point is dead on. This is related to consciousness. <laughs> and, and how do you know the thing is seeing the thing it's seeing? Even in the brain, there are cells in the the primary visual processing uh, cortex of the brain that are devoted to motion or color or different configurations. And it's a build up process to the point where, you know, more complicated systems are integrating that information to get to that. What is it? What pitch is it? What just happened? Did, Did that defender move left or right? You know? Did that window open up for me to execute a, a pass or a, or, or a, or a play? Um, and, and, and so that specialization at the lowest level, we are talking about pers- recognizing things as a, as a key distinction between perception speed and just say visual speed, because we get that, you know, I think the terms back to, to Harrison's question, Brandon, you, you've heard these, you know, more of these probably than I do, but you know, the person diagnoses the situation quick. Embedded in that is a little bit of they visually see and recognize what's happening faster. Um, they're a tick quicker, you know, off the ball or 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 in their, again, diagnosing something. I think that's what we're really talking about is they see it faster. Yeah, right. Jeff, as, as you probably know, we have three different visual tasks in our football battery, perception speed being one of them. We had a linebacker uh, at one of our NFL teams who had low perception speed, but had other good visuals. And they used to use him on the outside and they would bring him up to the line. They said his performance was significantly better when they pulled him one step back, just one Mm -hmm. step back. 
Does yeah. that make sense to you? I mean, yeah. you know, if his perception speed is low, we're, we're assuming he's having, he's slow to recognize things. He's slow to process things. So a step back just gives him a little bit more time to, to, to diagnose and to, to, to recognize what's going on to then inform his actions. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great interface between what you guys can provide in terms of providing these metrics about how their brain's functioning and then coaching, which is how can you just tweak the alignment a little bit to then have it all work together? Uh, I think that's a great example. So Harrison, going back to your question, we do hear the game, the game speed is just too fast for this guy. Um, or he's just, you know, he, his first step is slow. Uh, those kinds of things that are getting at, you know, uh, that piece of processing. Jeff, you know, I, I don't, I, we may not have, you know, this may be a deeper discussion and things like that, but in that mechanical sort of phase, in that just that processing phase, are there some common barriers? Are there some common things that might cause one to process information slow? Or is it just not that black or white? Well, there's one big thing. Okay? There are, so there are some black and white things, but there's not a ton, right? It's mostly gray. <laughs> Psychology is the field of grayness. But you know, we're starting to see slightly better forms. For example, one of the things that's clearly detrimental is having attention focused elsewhere. So if you're focusing on a location in space and then dots are coming up and, and you're supposed to judge when those come up, the ones that come up where you're paying attention appear to come on faster. So, so attention can modulate these, exactly these sorts of, um, uh, exactly the sort of thing we're talking about, which is how do I recognize the objects? It looks like the object appears in your visual stream faster if you're attending to that location. So if you're obviously, if you're a hitter who's keeps trying to, you know, see if the first base coach has, is, is tipping the pitch or some other silly, let's say strategy like that, that's really going to hurt you because you're not going to be getting the best information possible. So where you focus spatial attention is incredibly critical. I may be taking us off, off course here and Scott, I know you deal with this world all the time, but when we talk about pitch recognition, we've often heard this hard focus versus soft focus. Um, this where you attend, do you attend, do you try to attend to the pitcher's hand? Do you try to attend to release all of those sorts of things? Is it as simplistic as that? I mean, do we have this hard focus, soft focus that we can go in and out of that we can, that is there anything that is helpful, I guess, to, to recognize that pitch? Yeah. And what, and what are the trade-offs, <laughs> right? right? Well, I mean, I can tell you that the in the laboratory, one the biggest thing we know of is learning. Learning can crush all of these problems, if you want to call them that. So, I mean, I, that, I had the most extreme example because I worked with non-human primates who were, and I was doing a masking experiment with monkeys. Now, the interesting thing about monkeys is their whole job is to do this masking experiment. <laughs> they're not trying to, they're not trying to make the hall of fame. <laughs> so they have a much right. easier job, which is like, I'm going to see which way that gap is on that, on that, that diamond baby. And so they do that. They would do that all day for months is how long I had to train some of these monkeys. Well, once the monkeys kind of figured out the task and once I got them so that they were, could do it in about a human range, 
Well, they kept getting better and better across days that they kept doing this thing and they kept getting better and better. And then it became a huge problem because these monkeys were seeing the objects so quickly, it was faster than any human could do it. So what we wow. we were putting up arrays of objects and they had to decide whether there was a T tilted in a certain direction in this array. And we we flashed it up there for one frame, which was 16 milliseconds. That was the shortest that this monitor would let us show it. Sure. So we'd flash it, follow it with masks, and the monkey could do it at 80% correct. And, and wow. the, unfortunately, we don't have any human analog to that. So what we, we were in the business of trying to study interesting things in the human brain, but using monkeys. So the idea is train them to do a task that a, mon- that a human can do. Then you can record from inside the brain and see how they're doing it. Well, we could have recorded from the super monkeys, I guess, and found out what a super brain does that's, not, that's like 10 times better than our own brain. But the truth is, is we can probably build our, that into ourselves. If we were willing to do the same number of trials the monkeys were willing to do, you probably can make your, your visual system just screaming fast and be able to recognize objects incredibly oh, fast. I, I wow. totally, I totally think so. And my, the only data okay, points I have, what kind of hours are we looking at here, Jeff? I mean, uh, we're talking, we're talking your, your livelihood depends on it kind of hours, which I understand athletes feel that way about their task and everything. But I mean, the, so the data points I have are kind of myself and some other graduate students. So the, the people who program up these experiments are us. So we, we look at the stimulus for hours to try to make, you know, make sure everything's right. And then we, we practice it on ourselves and we kind of run it on ourselves to see if it's working. And we have to know it well enough that we can detect errors in the code that like the, oh, the computer program showed that for too long. That, was, that wasn't as right. short as it was supposed to be. You need to be able to detect those things. Brian, why well, what, stuff? Yeah, no joke. Well, yes. And so then, so then the thing is, is we run ourselves and we're like, huh, this experiment's not working. It doesn't look like the mask actually stops performance. People are, are, I'm much better at this than I should be. There must be something wrong with the program. You go down the hall and get somebody who's never seen this thing and you have them do it. And they're like, I have no idea what these objects are. <laughs> Just, they're totally yeah. a oh. chance. And so yes. you, you see... I mean, it, it takes a long time and we're, and yeah, we're talking weeks of practicing the masking task, right. To, to get it at that level. But, but the, we've seen crazy things in the laboratory yeah. like this. So Jeff, this is a really interesting discussion because in our tasks, there's no learning, right? Wow. And they're probably not encountering, <laughs> well, no learning predating taking yes, the test. It's right? new to them. Yes. There's no practice on That's great. corners of diamond missing at these speeds. Right, right. And so we hear like in baseball, for example, but there's other sports, tennis and all that. There are athletes that say, hey, I can see things so clearly and quickly out of the, the ball out of the hand. Uh-huh. You know, they, the term is they see spin. They're uh-huh. seeing patterns produced by yeah. spin. Yeah. Much easier. And then there are other athletes who say, yeah, I'm not seeing that. I'm, I'm making judgments. <laughs> yeah. By the time my brain's figured out kind of what the what the exit, you know, shape looked like, so it's going to be a curveball if there's a hump out of the hand, and they're they're using extra information or they're soft focusing like this, and 
making a decision much later. But there are athletes who just say, I mean, we've heard athletes, they go in to work this system and they, they take these cannons and shoot tennis balls with numbers or letters marked on the t- faces of the, the tennis balls at, you know, 110, 120 miles an hour. And some players can see <laughs> the numbers. It's Barry Bonds type stuff, right? Others can't. And so when we bring people into our perception speed, it is, it is striking that there are athletes with no learning who just see things at these one frame mass delays with a hundred percent accuracy and athletes who don't achieve, you know, better than 50% accuracy or better than chance accuracy until, you know, they have a good 60 milliseconds between the, the stimulus and the mass. So what is the mixture? Some of this is innate and genetically kind of determined, but if we say you can train it, are there bumpers or ceiling effects? You know, how far can you go? I'd love to have your thoughts on that because that's a big question we and discussion we have all the time. The attentional focus issue I think that you're talking about is is maybe where a lot of the movement lies in terms of these big differences between folks. Um, uh, in From about 1958 until the early 80s, attention researchers were mostly interested in one question, which is, does attention select the stuff it cares about before you recognize the object or after? So what, and, and so in the, in the baseball example, this is, you know, do you select, do you, um, is attention like at coming off the hand of the pitcher or does and, and and at that location, and that's kind of what it critically does. Or does attention really grab the thing, the ball, once it recognizes the good spin that it wants, right? Because oh, that's fastball spin. That's the one I want. And so it's really kind of do does does the smart part of your brain recognize everything and then grab the important things or does it focus just on the early on on one thing and then recognize the stuff that's in that focus that was kind of the debate do you do you actually know what everything is and you just remember the stuff you attend to or do you really only recognize the stuff you attend to and you can kind of filter out the objects that you're not attending to well it looks like you can do both (laughs) we spent decades decades (laughs) decades <laughs> and millions of dollars and we figured out the human brain can do both and and in an experiment i did in grad school we showed that if you just have cues come up beforehand versus after the fact you can get both early selection that is you just recognize objects if you're focusing at one location in space you just recognize the objects at that location and you don't recognize the objects out here but you can not do that. Not focus attention spatially when the information comes on, this kind of soft focus thing. The analog is the soft focus that you're talking about, where you just kind of, as some people say, let the stimuli come to you. <laughs> just like sit back and wait for it to happen, man. And 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 that that's effective in that you can recognize all of the objects, but you don't have that early benefit. So it looks like the brain recognizes the objects earlier if you attend to the location in space that it's coming off of. So presumably, if you could teach someone to shift spatial attention to the hand of the pitcher and come off of there, that is the optimal strategy. 
However, another strategy is to not focus there, right? Recognize the object. And then once you recognize it as, oh, those, that's a target, that's, a, that's a, uh, a fastball, then I need to try to figure out how to get my bat lined up with it to, to jack it out of the yard. So those, it's, a, it's a different deal. And you, of course, would say like, oh, hey, it's much better to do it this way, to, to focus attention on that thing. But then you have to teach people to discriminate what those, what those different motions are. Uh, the late selection strategy, if I, that's what a, a, an attention researcher would describe this, the people who just let the stimuli come to them and recognize all the objects. Well, they are recognizing the objects and they are seeing the spin in some sort of way, but they might not have access to it, right? Which is like, oh, I just felt like I could swing at this one. Some people who aren't really, uh, who don't give their brains much time to, to um, process the previous uh, you know, iteration to, to know, okay, so that is a fastball. Now what do I need to do that? They instead seem to report some sort of kind of an emotional response to things. Um, uh, th- th- this is my, uh, there's not a lot of data on that though. Let me say that there's not a lot of data on that, but we do get it in masking experiments as well. So if you really ask people in, in like in a visual lab where they're doing masking experiments, you know, what did you see the object? And they're like, well, this is what I did. I pressed yes if I kind of felt like I saw it. And you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, because it's, it, it, which is kind of how we feel like when we're swinging at a curveball. It's like, I kind of felt like this one wasn't spinning that much, or, you know. So what we're talking about, though, is, is actually kind of exciting because we, we in, in the player development space, Jeff, we, we have two yeah. sort of paths. One exactly right. We call these strategic adaptations, right? And that the example of that is the kid with low perception speed. He moves back in the batter's box to give himself a little bit more time, or off of the line of scrimmage to give him a little bit more time. The other one is true development, where it's like your monkeys in the lab, where you're literally training for hours. And in the whole cognitive rehab space or the, the, the development space, you know, we, we've looked at perception and action coupling and, and, and we have these transfer paths, particularly in baseball, about how to improve performance. And the first sort of layer of that is, is perception. So training the perceptual aspects of baseball and just taking rep after rep after recognizing pitches. Are you, are you suggesting we have more room to actually train this and we should be spending time actually training this. And if that's the case, well, then we need to have a much larger discussion on what does that look like? I mean, how can we help our teams and our players get better at perception speed? Because it is a barrier. Kids with low perception speed struggle climbing the ladder in professional baseball. Kids with low perception speed, uh, it, it, it is linked with uh, defensive pass interference. It is linked with all sorts of things on the football field. How can we help these guys? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm, you know, first thing I think we should do is to get to get the the cameras not where they are for game film. Like, why are we watching game film from where, not from the angle that the athlete actually sees the defense, but from where the birds are that are flying over the field. So Jeff wants anyway, that Madden view, doesn't he? He wants that Madden yeah, view. Yeah, exactly. That is the only view anyway. Well, and I realize this because I always buy the cheap seats and go for the end zones. 
And yeah. and I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is the fee- this is the view I've I've missed since high school football. It's this. This is the this is you can see the curvature of the field, the whole thing. So like the, the context specificity, and that's a science word for yeah, uh, precision. That we is exactly the, the time. having yeah. it exactly the same. So having the having people like study game film that is actually of the view they're gonna see. That would be a huge shift that I, do, I don't think we're actually kind of using right now. I mean, how Peyton was able to get all that out of all that game film study when he had to kind of imagine what it would look like. I mean, that's what our quarterbacks are doing right now, right? We're asking them to watch this game film, rotate it continuously in your mind, imagine what it looks like from your perspective and, so that you can recognize it when you see it that way. You know, they're changing that a little bit. They've got these projection rooms where they will project life size. Nice. And you walk, you line up in this room. Yeah. Um, some of the elite programs yeah. have these. <laughs> really cool. Actually Good. line up against <laughs> the life size yeah. and they move, the initial movements. You're exactly right. Wow, yeah. that's and perfect. Doug, Keep going. Yeah, and Doug does it in the, in the VR space. It's reality that actually right. simulates. Well, this is great. So those there is a lot of movement to be had, and so that's kind of what you're training in. That is what are the pictures in your the, your brain that you're matching to the perception coming in. You know, the a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is what cognitive psychologists tend to call perceptual learning. And the this is the these are the most boring experiments known to man. They are of the kind I described with monkeys, but people do these with humans too. And here's the task, right? So you're going to see bars that are like upright, and then they'll be tilted like one degree to the left or to the right. And you have to say, is this right or left? Right or left? Is this right or left? Is this right or left? Is this right or left? left? And you just get a bunch of these and they all look straight up to you. You're just like pressing the button randomly. You kind of get feedback across time. And, And what you find is that people get a little bit better during the day. But if they go home and sleep and then come back and do the task tomorrow, they're significantly better. Uh, and it looks like these are really important for these very low level visual um, quantities. Let's say if you want to measure the tilt of a line and one degree matters, well, you know, that's kind of a dumb sports example because that never matters really. But if we get into direction of motion, now everybody's like, oh, that's hugely important, right? So there's your baseball and your and every ball sport, right? Where the spin matters. And, and uh, you know, those sort of experiments where you're, trying to detect the difference of a a rotated spin that's this versus that, you know, very small couple degree angular differences. Those are the sort of experiments where you see big gains with sleep across months. Uh, And so a combination of teaching people strategies and these low level perceptual learning um, skills is probably the best move. Um, Obviously we've, these these sort of strategic things, we've always just called coaching. (laughs) You know, it's just like, oh, that's good coaching. But, you know, you're really doing a, a, you're recognizing a cognitive limitation and trying to design a procedure for the athlete to get around it. I had to do it with myself just for all the athletes out there. So I was a lineman, right? Offensive lineman. We got to remember a bunch of stuff. And I fancy myself as intelligent, like I'm a professor now, but I was not actually intelligent enough to be an alignment without a bunch of errors. So you have to remember the snap count and you have to remember the play. 
and then what the audibles are, but that's always, that's kind of just the same until you get busted. And, but you have to remember the snap count and the play. And I realized, Hey, these plays are kind of long. Sometimes if I just put the snap count on my finger and I just hold my thumb to the finger that the snap counts on. So if it's my index finger, it's on one. If my in my my middle finger on two, ring fingers three. And then I could just then I just code the snap that way. So it was a strategy so that I didn't have to hold that thing in memory. I would I would think about the play while I was walking up to the line and then and then look at where my thumb was to see when I was supposed <laughs> to go. Now, I'll tell everybody this, too. There was one sneaky-ass defensive lineman that noticed this one day and jumped me on a play. And I was like, how did you see that? I I had wore gloves and the whole thing. But, you know, uh, that just shows how fast human learning can be, too. Must have been Uh, Miles probably. Yeah, Miles Garrett saw it out of the corner yeah. of his eye. Hey, Deion Jones popped into my head. <laughs> yes. Picking up on subtle cues. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, they they feel the snap count. <laughs> so what I'm anyway, hearing is I'll you be- can do both the adaptive mm-hmm. strategic, what we talk about coaching, the adaptive and strategic methods, and also there's a chance to developmentally move this needle in the confines of the sport that they're playing to get better at perception speed. Fascinating. You know, it's interesting. You know, that if you talk to any coach and you say, yeah, you need to train your athletes to recognize pitches faster. They're going to say, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. The value in, 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 in certainly S2's approach is to say, look, yeah, we've, we've got to work on timing. We've got to work on pitch recognition, but there are principles and ways that, that we know work more efficiently. Uh, decades of science, like you said, that, that can give us some guidance and help us, you know, do this in a way that's going to be most efficient. That's going to be uh, to maximize an athlete's capability of recognized pitches. And so that, yeah, I think, Brandon, I think you're right. I think there's another conversation about what would this look like? What would a strategy and a set of you know, because we, we get all kinds of things for you got people wearing strobe glasses and doing all kinds of, of things. It would be great to kind of dissect those. and Where could they potentially be beneficial? Where are they a complete waste of time? Because, I mean, if there's one thing that, that we noticed right away in the sports world when we jumped into this was that the world after the decade of the brain was just inundated with brain training and everybody and their their uh, dog was was coming up with brain training gimmicks, gadgets, whack-a-mole boards, everything promising that's going to make you a better hitter. And that context specificity you talk about was so absent, you know. Um, so I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of what are the strategies to build faster, more efficient leaner perceptual processing systems. Be- oh man, we need to have uh, Dr. Woodman on for another episode. What a fantastic <laughs> thing and transition to have. Uh, Dr. Woodman, before we get into the last segment, I'd love to just hear about, I know you had mentioned something that you're working in your lab. Um, what's new recently with your lab before we get to the, the last piece here? Well, one thing I'm interested or I'm really excited about is um, I've been working with another memory researcher uh, and we've been trying to think through kind of what a unified model of memory would be. Um, human memory has turned into 
uh, a little bit of a mess <laughs> with people studying it in their own specific way. And so that, so there's not kind of, there's not a, uh, there's not a cohesive idea of like maybe human memory actually just works like this and it does these different tasks in these different sort of ways. So we're trying to bring some oneness. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. People have tried to do that in the past. Brandon was probably involved in some of these, these exercises in his previous life, but, um, but that's pretty exciting. You know, the, an interesting bit of being an academic and coming out of the pandemic is it actually left us with a ton of time to think. So we've been kind of acting on a lot of that. Like deep, <laughs> all the journals. Thinking yeah, time. yeah, that's right. Okay. So next time you're on, we're talking about all these adaptive strategies and where to develop. We're going to get into where you got with the memory stuff in your lab. Um, but now for your favorite element of the show, if I can remember correctly, three random and funny questions. Are you prepared? Uh, I think so. Okay. Can you describe the craziest adventure you've experienced in your life? Could be a vacation, trip with friends, could be an upcoming trip with a certain person who's going to be helping out. I don't know. Gow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. These are great questions. Okay, the, the craziest thing I tried to do is I tried to fly into Hong Kong, give a talk, and fly out before my clock reset. Uh, and let me say it was totally working i hadn't slept for three days i was on the outbound flight out of hong kong and one of the engines failed on takeoff and they diverted us to tokyo and they kept us in tokyo for two days and i basically slept for two days and i arrived back in america totally on like a 12-hour reset total mess. You know, that gets the description. Yep. Someone is being interviewed on TV or a podcast you're listening to. Who is the guest that makes you stop in your car, stay in your car, stop by the screen? Who's the guest that you, makes you want to listen to the full interview? I think I'll probably, <laughs> I'm going to say Hugh Jackman. He's got okay. a lot of energy and he, he seems to have, he seems to know how to do everything. Although I'm listening <laughs> to the tragedy of, of Jeremy Renner, it seems like he also knows how to do everything. So I'm kind of, I, I like people who, with diverse skills. So I'm going to say yeah. Hugh for now. He can sing. He's got claws yeah. somewhere in his, right. in his hands. Yeah, no, it's pretty right. amazing. Um, and final question is your biggest pet peeve. What is it? Oh boy. You know what it has been recently? Like I, complained about it like over dinner with somebody is the difference between less and few few and less <laughs> it drives me nuts i had to learn it because in asian languages it doesn't exist so i have to teach it to grad students and postdocs and stuff like okay if it's a count noun if it ends in an s you use this one and nobody else, no American knows how to use it. We just use less all the time because we think fewer sounds weird. And so like <laughs> people are like, I have less dollars. I'm like, I'm going to kill you. So anyway, that's kind of my deal. I would say Wait, that thing. So Scott, I see you nodding your head. Are, have you? Is this something you've thought about? Yeah, it's not my biggest pet peeve <laughs> by a long shot. But yes, I am aware of it. I, I, it's a problem. I had a mentor. It's an issue. Yeah, yeah. It's an issue. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Woodman, yes, for joining right. us. We, we appreciate your time today. Can't wait to get into another discussion. The huge educational lift of what perception speed is, what does it look like in the lab on humans, and then you know, average Joes and then to the athletes. We appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
We hoped you learned a lot today about the intersection between perception speed or processing speed and how it reveals itself in a sports setting. Things that are happening quickly and how these athletes are able to process that at the point of focus is really what we focused on. Again, if you like the content we're putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top, leave a review about the episode, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please go to s2cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2 Cognition podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. Talk to you on our next episode.